Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, good evening. Uh, Grateful you're all here tonight. Let's stand up, introduce ourselves to someone around us, and get familiar with who we're going to study with tonight. All right, I need you to open your Bibles to Genesis 1. We're going to spend just a few minutes as we transition uh, into tonight. I'm going to have you read the text so that you can become familiar with the the text we're going to cover tonight in week three, or actually week four, uh, week three of our uh, teaching and week four of our time together. Uh, And so what I'd like you to have you do is first read Genesis 1, verses 26 through 30. And just spend a, a moment reading that maybe twice. Read through it, 26 through 30. All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin our discussion. God, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for the beauty of this day, the sunshine and the warm temperatures. I thank you for the safe travel that people have uh, been able to experience out here for the students and the buildings across the uh, grass for the children down the hallway for their parents who have made it important to bring them here, for each person that's sitting in a class with the Bible in front of them and the freedom we have to study you and worship you and just at the end of our day, draw our minds to something so much bigger than our problems and our challenges. And uh, for that, God, we begin tonight by acknowledging your presence in this room and simply ask that you receive from this evening what you desire that our hearts and our minds draw closer to you and understand your love for us even more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's do just a quick review. Uh, You've had a lot of information thrown at you since we were last together last Wednesday night. In week one, uh, we set the premise that all of our theology that we can imagine is birthed in Genesis 1 through 11. It's extrapolated on later in other passages of Scripture But it is identified here and revealed here. In week one, we talked about how God is seen in creation. By studying Genesis 1 and 2, what do we learn about God? And then, in week two, we took Genesis 1 and 2, and what does it reveal about Jesus? How is he seen as a pre-echo? And how does that carry out through the rest of the Bible? Where there's glimpses of Jesus, or there's these echoes of Jesus Even before he physically arrived, they echo from creation and his role as creator. Now, I know that was a little abstract week two. We become far more practical going forward. Last week, Michael DeFazio came in and corrected all of my errors, and we answered questions. There were still very good questions that will come up in a few weeks. Uh, I'm trying to look the next one. be October 12th Uh, will be the next uh, Wednesday night that Michael comes back, and we're going to answer more of your questions as we build more of our theology. So we've discovered who God is through creation, what's been revealed to us. We've learned who Jesus is. Now I want us tonight to focus on mankind. What do we learn in Genesis 1 and 2 about you and me? What is our role here? Now this is going to sound overreaching, but I'm really unashamed to say it because I'm convicted in my heart from my Bible study that I can make this point. You may disagree or not be ready to make the same point, and that's okay. That's why we're here. I'm going to share with you my conviction, I'm going to show you where it comes from, and you can draw your own conclusions from that. But one of the things that's important about studying our role is many of the things debated in society today are answered in the Bible. We just don't believe it's relevant anymore. And I'm, going to, I'm not really even saying that to people that aren't in church. I think it's even relevant to say that to us, that the debate's not whether God meant what he said. The debate's whether we find it relevant. So there's a lot of debate in the courts. There's a lot of debate in legislation. There's a lot of debate in our homes. And most of all, there's a lot of debate in our own lifestyle as to whether or not the scripture is a valid source of guidance. And when we study Genesis 1 and 2, you're going to find some characteristics about mankind. And I want you to know I have no intention of being political tonight. So I'm not going to pick the political button and I'm not going to press it to see how many people argue, bark, get frustrated. That's just not a healthy way to teach. If I, if I was one to be provocative, I'd do it a completely different way. But some of the things I say tonight are going to be assumed by those who listen 
or by those who are in this room tonight as I am making a political stand. So let me clear, clear the air. I'm not trying to keep myself out of trouble. I'm a big boy. If I have an opinion, you know me well enough, I'll state it. But you didn't come to hear my opinion. So if you hear me say something tonight that you think is politically charged, I want you to realize I'm going to show you where it is in the Bible before it became political. Does that make sense? So let's see what the Bible says. And if we've politicized it, shame on us. But you're going to see that some of us, we will not have universal agreement tonight on some of the of things that I point out. And that's okay. We're, we're healthy enough and mature enough to have a debate and we'll use the Bible as our guidance. And if we decide to disagree on opinion, we can disagree on that all day long. Make sense? So have I covered myself well enough that if you're mad at me, it's your fault, right? That's all I basically said. If you don't like my opinion, I'm right. Get over it. It's basically the gist of all that. Okay. I know that's what it sounded like. It's not my intention. So let's begin. Genesis 1.27 is a verse that we all know very, very well, but I don't think we understand the importance of it. In Genesis 1.27, it says, In the image of God, he created them. There is as much theology in those, what, eight words than many other places in chapters alone. In the image of God, he created them. So let's parse this out. This is free. It's not even in your notes. Okay? In the image of God, he created us. We are not independent of God. He was the one who created us and he created us in his image, which meant there was a purpose for which we are what we are. It's not just an accident. And I want to develop that. So being a preacher and being trained in this school of preaching, I came up with four D's. Are you impressed? No one ever is, but my homiletics professor somewhere is going, I taught him well. So this is a composite of some things I've learned, and, and uh, let's go with four of them. I want to point this out. If Genesis 127 is true, and I am betting my life it is, the first thing you need to understand about humanity, the trait of humanity, is dignity. This is a huge topic today in our world. Dignity. If man is created in the image of God, no one has the right to degrade or destroy human life. Politicized today? Absolutely. Biblical before it was political? Absolutely. Let's redeem the dignity of human life. Now, are there subsequent issues that come up? Uh, uh, capital punishment, putting someone to death, the death penalty is what escaped my mind, the death penalty, abortion, racism, uh, the upper class, middle class, lower class fight. The power used to keep those with possessions, to keep possessions away from those. The, the debate whether we should be capitalistic or socialistic. Are you with me? It all comes down to dignity, doesn't it? When, when mankind shows dignity to one another, when, when you give the value of a human life, its absolute value in the eyes of God, it will change the way we legislate. It will change the way we behave with one another. It will allow nobody the right to judge the color of skin or the gender of a person against them. Yet even in the church, these things have existed. I've told this story before, and if, if, I'm sorry if it's embarrassing for me to repeat it, but it was, it was incredible to me to be a kid in church, and I was bored during a sermon. I know you can't imagine that, but my brother Scott and I were sitting next to each other, and my dad's Bible had like every bulletin he ever had from church shoved in that thing. And we were going through and just picking stuff out, and we found the church bylaws. So we started reading the church bylaws. And I remember my brother Scott going, oh, and he elbowed me and he showed me a line. And we reached over and hit my dad and he gave us the death look. Don't do this during church. And Scott went, dad. And he handed my dad the bylaws. And my dad read what we were pointing out. And he got the look on his face that I had seen moments before I thought I was going to die. It was the Dale's not happy look. And my dad kind of looked back at us and he just gave us the shh and he took the bylaws from us. And as soon as church was over, he grabbed three of the elders. He was one. He grabbed three of the elders and they went back in the nursery and shut the door. And we stayed out in the foyer waiting for dad to come out for about 45 minutes. But what we had discovered in the bylaws that were written in 1956, that African-Americans, if they entered the church, had to sit in the balcony. Church 
bylaws. My dad had no idea they were in there, which made me more proud of my dad that he never read the bylaws than about anything else he ever did. But they went, and a month later, a church meeting, changed the bylaws completely, got all that nonsense out of there. And you can say to me, 1956 was a different age. Would we agree? Absolutely. It doesn't make it okay. But it was a different period of time when our country was fighting with what? Race relations. So somebody decided this would be a good idea. It's a horrible idea. And it was fixed. The dignity of all life is found not in what you do with your life. The dignity of all human life is founded on what? Made in the image of God. So whenever we come to any conclusion about the value of a Muslim, the value of a woman, the value of the poor, or let's flip it to how we overestimate the value of the rich, the value of the successful, the value of the entertainment industry. Just because they're good-looking, rich, and make a lot of money doesn't mean they're any more valuable than the guy who stands outside or stands at an intersection with a sign that says he needs a place to stay tonight. So when we look at that, the first thing I have to start with, if we're going to take in the image of God seriously, is dignity. And what is required of you and I toward any other human being? To honor the dignity of every individual, pure and simple. So that sermon was long. Here we go. So if you want to ask me questions about social justice, race relations, sexual ethics, abortion, euthanasia, and a whole host of other topics, I will personally, not because I'm superior, but I'll tell you my conclusion, we will start with Genesis 127, where we can't have a real conversation. If you believe that God didn't make mankind, then you get the privilege of treating anybody the way you want. If you believe God made every one of us in his image, then you can't say anyone's better or worse than you. And I think both extremes are wrong. One's more powerful than the other. To believe that people are lesser than you is really an unfortunate thing to choose. But to think that someone's better than you is almost or is an equal lie of Satan that causes more damage. You see it in body image issues that women face and what's going on with sexual identity in our culture. It's all avoiding Genesis 127. Second thing, dominion. This is a happier word. Some of you are staring at me like I just stabbed somebody on stage. It's kind of funny to watch you all right now. You're like, I wish I'd have stayed home. But let's walk through this. Because much of what our culture is debating is, has a biblical foundation by which we can respond. Dominion. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 26, and I hope you can have your Bibles open. If, you're, if your Bible is on an app and you're trying to take notes on the app, may God be with you. But the rest of us can have a Bible open in our notes next to us. If you look with me at verse 126, it says we are to rule over the created things. Verse 128, we are to subdue the earth. Man has been given dominion over both uh, the plants, 215, and the animals, 220. Human beings have the responsibility to do with each of those areas what God has asked them to with responsibility. Now, being in ministry in the 80s and 90s, I remember that there was always the mocking of the tree huggers and we're trying to save the land and God gave us the land and let's find balance. It's like any trend that goes on in society, you got to find balance. Did God give us the trees for our usage? Talk to me, church. Absolutely. Did he give us the animals for our usage? Did he give us one another for usage? Yeah, we're to live in community. You own me and I own you. If we live in proper community, I owe you a debt of service and you owe me a debt of service. Not because I've earned it, but because we love each other and we each have dignity, right? So what happens? But we think the world's our playground. And so we do whatever we want to it to make a profit. We keep others from using certain parts of it. We own things and and hold it against people so we can jack up prices and all that. Is that what God told us to do? Is that dominion? Now, dominion that suppresses and depresses an individual is not God's dominion. Dominion is when God is honored by our usage of anything. That's why it's funny. And now, I don't know how many of you were here Wednesday or uh, Sunday, but I made a comment about I think Christians are the kind of people who go get the carts out of Walmart and push them back to the bin or take them in the store. 
I've never received more emails about a non-biblical process than that. The best one I got this week came in Tuesday morning. Do you really do that? That was the question. And I said, absolutely not. I have sons. They do it for me. (laughs) Thus, dominion. Okay? (laughs) Braden and I do that all the time. He's just used to it. And it's, I, don't, I didn't say that. I hope you know my heart. I didn't say that to be a hero. What I was trying to do is get people to realize it's really the little things that are your best form of worship. It's picking up a piece of trash so nobody else has to. That's probably one of the most God-honoring things you can do all week. Well, anyway, in those discussions, dominion means we take care of what God's given us. We don't just throw it away. We don't treat the world. Now, if you're thinking, oh, here he goes. He's going to start talking about recycling. I am not. I'm not talking about recycling, but I could. Because recycling is a stewardship issue, isn't it? And uh, my grandmother uh, used to wash out uh, when uh, Coke and... Well, they loved root beer, so they'd buy this big two-liter thing of root beer. They thought they were the richest people in the world. She would wash those root beer two-liter bottles out and save them. I don't know what she was saving them for. My grandmother had one drawer full of aluminum foil. She would... Wrap a potato, take it off, fold it up, wash it off, put it back in the drawer. She lived through the depression. She had an understanding of honoring the things you have and not just being wasteful. She'd drive us crazy. I remember the one time she made lima beans and I chose not to like them. And she served them for lunch. I didn't know what I did wrong. I didn't. I did, was, thought I was behaving. She made lima beans for lunch and I only ate like three of them and spread them around the plate. And I came to dinner that night. Guess what she served her grandson? I got the lima beans back. And uh, she taught me a lesson about that. You're going to eat what's in front of you, and we're not going to waste food because you're picky. And uh, I still remember that. I I pray for her forgiveness a a lot. (laughs) Third D, distinction. Dignity, dominion, distinction. 127, chapter 1, verse 27. Male and female, he created them. Now, is this just speaking about humanity or is this speaking about nature? Anybody want to take a guess? Well, we know there's male and female animals of every form, right? So part of God's plan was there was a distinction that males and females are not the same. They are compatible they are in community, they're relational, and they're part of God's plan for procreation. So if one of the commands is to fill the earth, he he gave us the devices to do this. And so because of that, male and female talks about distinction. Genesis 2 highlights the differences by giving the genders separate names. Chapter 2, verse 23, when you read that. Just take a peek of that. So it's really important tonight to have those Bibles open, because remember, you shouldn't trust me. I want you to see it for yourself. And he actually shows us in chapter 2 how they were created separately. Verse 7 and verse 22. And he even calls one of them a helper. So before you start to pick at me as a male chauvinist, I'm going to explain to you what that Hebrew word for helper means if you stay awake. We'll get there in just a little bit. And I'll show you that doesn't mean inferior product. Doesn't mean servant. Word helper, well, I'll just jump to it right now so you trust me. The word helper is a word more commonly used about God than it's ever used about female. Which ought to tell you its value, right? So when it says God is my helper in the Psalms, same word. So you wouldn't think God's inferior, right? You wouldn't think God's a slave, or made. So, fourth letter D, duty. God gave man duty. He gave him something to do, a reason to be. So the very first command we have in scripture, when there is a male human and a female human being, the first command is found in 128. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God said, have children. 
fill the earth. When we jump to Genesis 11 at the end of our study in this particular semester, when we get to Genesis 11, you'll see one of the things that irritated God about mankind was he kept telling them to fill the earth. He gave them this entire globe to inhabit and they kept wanting to stay. They kept staying together and trying to build these great cities. That's not what he asked them to do. He gave us this entire landscape and he said, go enjoy it, go experience it. And I think they wanted to stay right there. When I got a chance to go to Israel... Uh, last uh, May, Michael and I got to go on this trip and we went to Israel. One of the things I noticed is they're, all their world maps are wrong. Do you know why their world maps are wrong? Because in the center of their world map, the United States isn't in the center. Every map I've seen my entire lifetime, you see the U.S. and everything spread around it and we're all going amen, right? Let's salute. But when you go to the Middle East, the center of the globe is the Holy Land. Even to those who don't believe in the God of Abraham. It all started there, the cradle of civilization, that whole area that mankind spread out throughout the world. It was one of the most iconic moments for me on that trip. I'll never forget it. In fact, if I ever get the opportunity to go back, I'm, I'm going to buy one of those maps to remind me that the center of the universe isn't me. Center of the universe is where God started mankind and what his command was to create a holy people. And so there's some duty. There's to go fulfill the earth, uh, fill the earth rather, and subdue it. And the relationship between man, God and man was not among equals. Let's always remember that. God is not our peer. He's not our friend the way we use the word friend. He is our creator. He is our ruler. Man is dependent upon God for the blessings of life. Man is accountable to God for the areas of service and obedience. So reviewing, if this were a college course, some of you snap your heads up. It isn't, is it? No. You can't get credit and there's no test. But if it were, the essay question that I would give you after three weeks is this question. Take the four, the four traits of humanity that we justify out of Genesis chapter 1. And tell me why they matter in your pursuit of God and his pursuit of you. Because I believe it's a balancing act. It's four legs on a table. If one of these legs is shorter than it needs to be, the stability of your foundation as a follower of Jesus will be awkward. If, if three of them are the same length and one's longer, it doesn't matter how you want to do this. If we don't understand these things about ourselves that we have a dignity given to us by God, we have a dominion that he made man better and different than any other form of creation, that there's a distinction between men and women that God finds useful and is part of his master plan. It wasn't a punishment. And lastly, that we have a duty to the God who created us. Now, and I keep saying this because I'm going to assume there's always skeptics in the audience. That's the reason why I believe you can say fairly that all theology comes out of Genesis 1 through 11, even knowing who we are. So let's become more practical. What was man intended to be from creation? Let me tell you a few things about ourselves. First of all, we are natural beings. And you'll see theologically why this makes a difference. We are natural beings. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Now, for the linguistics, right? For those, those who love language. When it said that God created the heavens and the earth, there's a word used. There's a Latin uh, expression called ex nihilo. Uh, it's, or nihilo, depending. If you say annihilate, means to make nothing of it. Ex nihilo, that term means out of nothing. When it said God created the heavens and the earth, remember we talked about this? He spoke it into being and it was. When it says God created man, it's a different Hebrew word. Because he created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, he created man out of what? Something. Out of dust. Which means we are a different kind of creature than earth. We're a different kind of creature than that. And that does play a difference in the way we see ourselves. When he created Adam, he's created him out of something. 
And the Hebrew word to mold or formed, said he formed him out of the dust of the ground. That means to shape by design. And another time Isaiah uses that word, it means what a potter does with clay. So God took something and turned it into something else. That's why you can do the research. uh, I'll put this out there for you science folks. There's a book called The Bible, Science, and Creation. And the author's research that the human body is composed of 58 pounds of oxygen, two ounces of salt, 50 quarts of water, three pounds of calcium, 24 pounds of carbon, some chlorine, phosphorus, fat, iron, sulfur, and glycerin. And the beautiful part of this, the whole point they make is they can break the body down into its components, put all of those elements on a table, and not one of us can make a man. So we are a different kind of creation, right? So when we look at this, the emphasis is that we were created from humble origins, from the original components by which God created the earth. So for those that question, and those, and once again, Michael gave us a good caveat last week, and I want to honor it because I don't disagree with it at all. No, not making fun of someone else's position. But one of the questions the Big Bang doesn't answer for me is, where did humans come from? Where, where did they come from, being a distinct form in all creation? And I'm not, I'm not saying they don't have an answer. I just haven't found a satisfying answer. And so when we look at this, the Hebrew word means that we were shaped out of the dust of the ground, out of clay. In Job 10, Job says, remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Which is interesting for those that question whether the Genesis account was more than just mythology. Job, in his conversations with God, actually refers back to the, the statement that God created man out of out of clay, and then turns him into dust at the end. And the word for Adam in the Hebrew is actually the word for ground. So it's kind of interesting that even the name Adam doesn't mean that to us if we said, and God made the first man and he named him ground, or he named him dirt. Then we would look at that and go, interesting. But we translate Adam into some mythological person when actually he was a real human being made out of natural elements. So you say, blah, 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 so what? Well, that matters. The first piece about us being natural beings matters now when you add the second piece. We are spiritual beings. This is why you could take all the components that make up the human body, put them on a table, they can't make a human. We are spiritual beings, Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, I've read this. I can't, I can't vouch for this research that I read about, but I'm going to share it with you that it was, it was stated that they will measure a body on occasion uh, for some scientific tests. They've done this in the past where when a person was about to pass and the doctor said they don't have very long, they would weigh the body, and then when they died, they were trying to calculate how much weight was lost. None. There's no uh, discernible difference in weight when a person stops living and when they live. They wondered, you know, what was the weight of the spirit of a human being? And so, you know, with the cryogenics, right, we're going to cut off Walt Disney's head and keep it in a vault, or Ted Williams, whoever the myth is, we're going to keep it in a vault, and when they figure out how to bring back the life, we're going to snap that head on a body, and we all know that if you were just natural people, you could make Frankenstein. But we're not just natural creatures. The spirit is our life. And so it says that God breathed into his nostrils, 2-7, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And which is interesting because you say, why does that matter? Well, look at Genesis 1.27 again. God created in, in his image. In the image of God, he created Male and female, he created them. So does God have a physical body? This is a trick question, church. This is why none of you ever answer in church. Because once a preacher made fun of you. That's what my assumption is. Does God have a physical body? Yes and no. What's the yes answer? Jesus, thank you. What's the no answer? Not, 
not the pre-existing God. He came in human form so we could relate to him, but he is a spirit, does not have a body. So if you picture like Poseidon sitting in a chair out of the water, he's got a long white beard, royal robes and all of that, that's because Bugs Bunny taught us that. It's not because the Bible depicts him at all. Now there are moments where it says God turned his back. Remember, he had uh, Moses wanted to see the glory of God and it said God showed him his back. We have no idea what that means except that God could not appear before him because Moses would not have survived it. Do I know what that means? No. But it makes great motion pictures. Charlton Heston got a good tan. We moved on with the film. All right, his hair went white. He came down tan and fit. It was amazing. So the result of the breath of God is that it gives man life before he was just a body, but life wasn't because of the body. It was to inhabit the body. Now, I could go into great length. In fact, I could probably bring Isaac up here and let him do this. He's got the theology degree in this particular piece, I'm sure. But one of the things that you need to point out is Jesus lived in a day where they thought any physical craving was evil. Hunger was evil. Sexual drive was evil. Any form of physical behavior. The body was corrupt, and the Greeks taught that it pulled you down into Hades, and the spirit of your life was trying to clamor out of it. Thus, good works was the spirit beating the body, and fasting and doing some of these things became rituals to pagan gods to try to earn God's approval. Does that make sense? I'll just leave a very simple explanation that way. So when Jesus came down and he talked about that the body in and of itself is not evil, but what comes out of the mouth or what comes out of the heart precedes the man, then he was talking about the spirit of a person. And Paul's writings, in several of Paul's letters, he, he brings up this dichotomy that the Bible is not bad. He says to Timothy that some, some discipline, some, some uh, bodily exercise is good, but spiritual exercise is what? It's better. So this juxtaposition of the physical versus the spiritual, which one is real? I want you to see from Genesis. Remember, if we take out some of the debates that have happened since Genesis and go back to its core, here's the question. Is the body in and of itself good? Yes. Thank you. Some of you are hesitant to ask. You go, no, you got to see the one I got. Now, I'm not saying yours personally. I'm saying as a whole, the way God created it. It's good, right? And is the spirit that God gave us good? Well, now we get into original sin versus whether we're born innocent, and we'll save that for another day. But no matter how you position yourself on that, I go back to Genesis and say, what does it say? When Adam was created and Eve came from Adam, what were God's words about their physicality? Oh, you know this from every wedding, right? It was good. And when Eve came out, what did he say? That's my best work yet. So is the physical body evil? Yeah, the women are found like, yeah. All right. Made in his image. We are made in the image of God and our soul is different from all forms of creation. I'm just going to pick through some of these points here. There's a higher calling and connection between man and God. Now hold on to this. And I want you to, to think, you may say, yeah, yeah, I already know that. I want you to think about the implications of it. That the relationship between God and man is stronger and greater and deeper than the relationship between animals and man, plants and man, the stars and planets and man. Why? I've set you up. This is a simple answer. Fill in the blank. Because we're made in his image. Now, does that mean that we should be cruel to animals, destroy the earth, and do whatever we want to the vegetation in the world? Absolutely not. Those were gifts from God to his special creation. So we continue. Unlike the beasts of the field, we are stamped with the image of the creator. Animals don't have souls. So Mark, are animals going to go to heaven? You know what my answer is, right? Everything but cats. Thank you. No, that's just seeing if you're listening. Just seeing if you're listening. Please no emails. I know that was wrong. Are animals going to be in heaven? I used to say no because they didn't have a soul. And then I was awakened to Genesis 1 and 2. And remember, it starts in a garden. It's fixed in a garden. And it ends in a... And what, what was in creation before the fall? Animals. So are animals going to be in heaven? Randy Garris, who was the preacher for a thousand years at College Heights, said, 
And I like his answer. He said, if heaven is going to be full of the best things, there'll be animals in heaven, especially dogs. Now, will your dog know you? Don't ask me that when I have no clue. I'm just hoping to get in myself, ultimately. Um, Man finds through the spirit the connection to God. The physical man will understand the need for food and air and sunshine and so forth, but it's the spirit of God that connects us to God. It is the Holy Spirit that speaks to us and awakens our spirit after sin, brings conviction, brings hope, brings life. All right, thirdly, we are practical beings. So there's a reason we're here. Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man, put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And so just did a little bit of research in the past and for this class. And Adam was created outside of the garden and then he was placed inside it. I did not know that. The understanding of the scholars that I read said that he was, he was created outside of the garden and he was brought and put into the garden. And the Hebrew word for put, so he took the man and put him into the garden of Eden. The Hebrew word for put literally means to rest. So what does that mean? Well, study the word rest <clears throat> throughout your Bibles, especially in the New Testament, especially in the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrew Christians. And when you read that, rest is a prominent theme. When we are living physically and spiritually in connection with God and in obedience, there is a rest there that can't be found any other way. Unrest indicates a disconnection. So we think, when I read it as a kid, as an American kid, I think when it says, uh, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your rest, I picture like what will happen tonight when I get home and I turn on the baseball game and I flop on the couch and I make that noise. It sounds like, <sighs> like we're going to get to heaven so exhausted. When actually, I now like a better word picture that when God takes this earth and recreates it and places us in his heaven, instead of a sighing of exhaustion, we're going to sigh like, I'm home. You know that feeling you get when you get home and you kick your shoes off? And you go upstairs and take your contacts out and you put on your gym shorts and your t-shirt, you, you fill in those blanks however you wish. And you just put your glasses on and you go to your refrigerator and you get something you want to eat or drink and you just sat at the end of the day and you don't have to go anywhere and you don't have to do anything and you're with the people you most love. Church, are you with me right now? Doesn't that sound like home? What's heaven going to be when God puts us back in a place? It'll just, man, we're going to kick our shoes off. And even if we work, it's not going to be hard. It's no mosquitoes and no weeds and let's go. All right, so sorry. Snapped into that. God rested him in the Garden of Eden is what I'm pointing out. And his purpose was twofold. He told him to cultivate it, which means to serve it, to work it and to serve it. Notice that the physical activity was a part of original creation. If you were here with us in the spring and we did the other six days, we talked about work. Work is not punishment. It's not punishment. I have the opportunity to speak at this event Ozark's going to put on Monday morning for senior citizens about how senior citizens today, I'll back the tape up. The way I understand the times have changed, my grandma and grandfather had my, my mom, my mom's folks, had my mom in 1936 when he was 42 and she was 41. That means nothing to me until my grandmother told me the story. Back in the 30s, most people didn't live past 60. So grandma and grandpa never thought they'd see their daughters grow up to get married, nevertheless see grandchildren. And both of them lived to 90, 90 plus. But when it happened, my grandmother said, I was so embarrassed. I was 41 years old and pregnant. <laughs> this just made us laugh because in our culture, we'd be high-fiving her. Back then, she was like wearing big puffy dresses because she'd have to admit she was pregnant. They wanted children. They had them late. You get my point. But during that moment, that was a strange uh, dynamic. And so the whole culture has changed, right? So you have this moment where there was this feeling like we've got to hide this and we have this and, and all of a sudden it's not, it's not appropriate. And then we get to our age and it's like there's a little less discernment, uh, if you will. Uh, not about being pregnant. Please don't take that metaphor there. But there's a culture in which we look and say, 
hard work, labor. We say we don't know how to deal with it. My grandma and grandpa were raised in a different era. My grandfather quit going to school in sixth grade because he worked on the farm. And this is what his answer was to every time we asked him. He said, I didn't need to be educated. My dad taught me everything I needed to do. He never intended to leave the farm. He just thought he'd take over the farm and operate. Then he started working at Studebaker making cars in South Bend, and he was a foreman, and he lived this entire life. And, and he used to say this word. I know it wasn't original with him, but I thought it was because he was the first one that ever said it to me. He said, Mark, if you find out what you're made to do, you'll never work a day in your life. So we used to tease Grandma. You were embarrassed you had kids. She said, no, I was born to be a mom. So in that moment where society was taking from her, she said she wanted nothing more. Than, she was a great grandma. I mean, like a fantastic nurturing grandma. She'd tell my grandpa to stop. I used to love it. He'd be getting on me, and she'd go, you quit. And he did. I was like, <laughs> I love her. Work is not punishment. And my grandfather was right. And some of us, I hope everyone has, but some of us, maybe you had a job that was perfect for you, and you changed it, and you went, oops. Because when you find out what God creates you to do, it doesn't feel like work, right? Does that make sense? So to cultivate it, to live it out, the physical activity was a part of creation. Work did not come till after the fall. They were gardening, and they were raising, and they were feeding the animals, and they did all of that, which makes me believe that heaven's not going to be floating on clouds. It's going to be work. We're going to be serving God. We're going to be serving one another. Those of you that can bake, praise the Lord, you're going to make pies. And those of you that love to garden, you're going to grow without any of the restrictions, without any of the bugs, without any of that. We're all going to do that. I don't know what we preachers are going to do. (laughs) Who knows? We'll probably mop floors and that'll be okay too. But we're all going to be doing probably what we end up doing in service in this lifetime there. So it's not going to be floating on a cloud or sitting in a library or sitting in church. Heaven forbid it's an eternal worship service. Yuck. I think we're going to be doing the things we love. And uh, one of my friends wrote me after a teaching that he went through and he said, um, he said, after hearing you talk about that, he, he trains horses. He said, can you imagine the herd of horses guys are going to let me train? And of course, being his friend, I had to bust his chops, right? So I wrote back and go, in heaven, they'll already be trained. And he just wrote back, I hate you. And that was the end of our conversation. <laughs> I'm used to that. All right. To keep it is the second thing he tells us. Not only will we cultivate it, we'll keep it, which means to guard it. And this goes back to duty. This goes back to dominion. We have responsibilities. We have purpose. And so because of that, he's told us where to guard it. Genesis 3, 24. I know you haven't read ahead there, but there's the reference. To exercise great care over it. Not toilsome labor. Not sweat-producing labor. So, anyway. I started to tell you, I'm going to get to speak this thing at Ozark. And I remember my grandfather retiring at the age of 65. Why did he retire at the age of 65 at his advanced age? Because that's when you were supposed to retire somehow. Do you know the concept of retirement is not in the Bible? I'm not saying if you retired, Bud's going to come up here and punch me. I'm not saying because Bud retired cutting hair that he did anything wrong. But it is more a, an American concept, a social concept. Like my grandmother was embarrassed to be pregnant at 41. Now people always retire at 65. You know what our government says the new retirement date is for my generation? Never. There'll be no money when I retire. So my, my father, who is my hero in certain areas, my dad retired from United Airlines at 63 years of age. True story. He spent two weeks doing what my mother did every day and went back to work. True story. He's like, I can't do this. My dad likes to keep busy. And he said, I just can't sit around and watch Murder, She Wrote. So he went and got a job. And he works at a grocery store putting produce out every morning. He's a farm boy. He gets up at 5 in the morning. He's at the store at 6. He puts the produce out. He's home by 2.30 in the afternoon. My mom says she loves it. They have fresh salads every night. He'll call her and say, I'm going to pick up some cucumbers. Do we have lettuce? And they have a nice meal every night. My dad just wants to keep busy. And he just said to me, I'm going to rest through eternity. I just want to work. Now, what I find funny is those of you that retired from your profession, 
I'm betting you're as busy now as you were even more so than when you were, t- when you were working. And so here's the purpose. We were not created before or after the fall to sit around. And you'll come up to me before I'll get to do this. I'm going to jump you. Most of us know stories of people who were very active and very healthy until they stopped. And what happened? They lost their purpose. They lost their passion. They lost their energy. So getting to speak to this group of senior citizens on Monday, it's kind of funny. I feel like I'm entitled to speak about it because about three months ago, for my wife's great joy, I got my first AARP card. So uh, that hurt. That hurt quite a bit. But it got me 10% discount at a restaurant. I got over it. But the truth of the matter is, retirement is a presupposition placed on us by culture. The same way my grandmother was made of, she felt uncomfortable with being pregnant. The whole point of that illustration is, retirement is something, you can stop working where you're working. But I think we all need to get ready. We're going to work throughout eternity, doing things we love to do. So those of you that garden, it's not work. For some of us, gardening is a lot of work. Right? Okay. I won't belabor that anymore. Genesis 2.2. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Is rest wrong? Is retirement wrong? No. Is inactivity unnatural? Yes. So we are natural, spiritual, practical. Fourth, we are rational. This is where the creativity And free will of God is beautiful to me. Verses 19 and 20 of Genesis 2. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. I don't know how many of you have the unfortunate imagination I have. How long did that take? And how did he know? Did he think that he had the taxonomy of the birds done and then a new one flew by? Or maybe he had four different kinds in front of him and he was ready to name them and a blue jay came in and scattered them. And he was like, ah, so close. Did this take 20, 30 years or did he do it in a week? And the names mattered. He didn't make grunts and sounds. The names mattered. When you see the names in the Hebrew, he's actually identifying characteristics about them. What's the point of this story? It took a rational creature with a creative vocabulary and the ability to reason and draw conclusions and observations. Sounds like a mind. Now, here's where I get in trouble in the past, so I'm going to offer it. No other part of creation can do that. But the dolphins communicate. Mm -hmm. They don't name each other. Dolphins don't talk about us. Two whales under the water, if we could interpret them, they're not going, I'm going to go right through the middle of their boat. They're not doing that. There's an instinctive or instinctual language that uh, certain animals use. Birds communicate all the time. We realize when this one ridiculous bird who kept flying into our basement window over and over and over again. And we were online and read 15 reasons why birds fly into windows. The most reasonable one I found was they have a nest nearby, they see their own reflection in the window, and they're trying to shoo themselves away. And I'm thinking, I was 13 once, that totally makes sense. (laughs) But the birds aren't, when they communicate, what we found is this bird made a particular sound every time it was about to come to the window. It was communicating. Do the other kinds of birds understand that? I have no clue. But I tell you that, you and I can learn to communicate. We can learn different languages. We've created language. If you don't believe language is being created even today, go talk to a 16-year-old. And they will be speaking a known language to their tribe, and you and I are not invited. (laughs) Turn on the radio. I have no idea what anyone's talking about, but I know I don't like it. So we are always creating. We're rational creatures. We reason. We think. God has given us all these capacities different than any other being. We have a comprehensive power of the mind. Now, you're not going to believe this is true, but I know it is. You could strip every watch and every clock from your existence. You don't need them. And we did a thing in a psychology class in college, and it was powerful. 
where we went and we, we went one week without being anywhere near a clock. All the clocks on the college campus were taken down. Everyone's watch was turned in. We didn't have computers and we didn't have cell phones. And we would be asked by our psych professor whenever he'd see us on campus what time it was. And we were given a five-minute margin. The accuracy to our internal clocks is so flat-out ridiculous that the watch is something you don't need at all. You can tell by just looking outside and what time of year it is. You can put yourself within two or three minutes of the actual time. You don't need an alarm clock. Do you know that they'll tell you that if for the hour before you go to bed, every five minutes you say to yourself, I want to wake up at 6.05, that you will wake up within two or three minutes of that time because of the power of your mind. When I was in college, they taught us in educational psychology to review your notes for an exam before you go to bed and then go to bed. If I have a, a, a difficult problem, I'll pray, and then before I go to bed, I think, how do I want to handle that text, or what text should I choose for this event? And then I will go to bed. I will wake up in the morning, and my mind will have processed that like a supercomputer all night long. Sometimes I have answers. Sometimes I have a leading. Is that part prayer and part mind? doesn't matter. My mind prays to God. It's the same concept. But all these little tricks that we've gotten used to mechanics doing for us, how did... How did, the, uh, how did the Native Americans in the United States know when to migrate? And you know what your answer is going to be? Oh, it's seasons. No, no. How do they know what day to go? Because if it were us today and we were migrating and it's 98 degrees out here at the end of September, we'd stay another three months and die. Starve to death. How did they know how to do that? They didn't have a calendar. What do they do? Rational, comprehensive, rational skills in their minds. All right. I can beat that to death because it makes me happy. You guys are getting bored. So, oh, also, there's one other point about the rational being. And this is a preacher's joke. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny here, but it makes me laugh. Um, Adam knew there was nothing like him. How did he know that? There There was no companion for him. He hung out with the gators one day, boring. (laughs) Hung out with the snakes and said, no, I don't like those guys at all. It meant that he reasoned, there's something different about me. That's why we have community with people that are like us. There's something rational to go, well, that guy likes Notre Dame too, so we have something in common. We can build from that community. All right, uh, fifth, we're moral beings. We're natural, spiritual, practical, rational, and moral. So if you wondered, what's with the rational? Who cares? I can think, yay. Here's the point. With that responsibility, with our, with that ability, you know, according to Spider-Man, comes great responsibility. And it's the moral factor. Verse 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, what? How dare he tell me I can't do something. What would be our answer to that presupposition? Someone says, how does God have the right to tell me I can't? Okay, all right. All right. The practical translation is, he could kill us. The theological foundation for that is Genesis 127. We were created by him without any input. Okay, now I know I'm I'm quirky. Uh, That's a nicer word than weird. But I always, birthdays, when anybody comes up and wishes me a happy birthday, my first thought since the time I was young enough to remember is, yeah, I'm going to get presents, but B, I had nothing to do with it. Why are you congratulating me? (laughs) You know, go tell my mom, hey, congratulations on having your fourth kid. But for my birthday, it's kind of like, I didn't choose to be here. I'm glad I got the parents I got. I'm glad I've received what I received, and I'm grateful to be alive. But do you get my point? I had little to do with that. So when someone says to us, how dare God tell me I can't be what I want to be and do what I want to do, your theology comes into play. Because you were created by God for his good pleasure, not for your own. Fortunately, our creator God developed us for both our pleasure. But ultimately, he has the right to command us. We continue. 
From any of the trees of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The first command in Scripture is in 2.16. The first command of Scripture to man, I need to clarify that, to man specifically, is 2.16. First, he told him, now I want you to notice the progression of this. He told them what they could do, and then he told them what they could not do. Doesn't that sound like God? God doesn't just limit. God explains why the limitations exist. Do you think that would change our culture if we understood God that way? Rather than what the church has done historically is point out all people can't do. Or as one of my friends a long time ago really clarified my head, he said... He said, when your church knows more about what it's against and what it's for, it's not bringing good news. So the context is, he gives them what was permitted, that they could eat of anything that he provided for them. Now, does anything mean anything? That's not a snarky question. For the question last week, were they vegetarians or vegans back then, or could they have eaten the animals? Some people use this verse and say they were vegans. Other people say anything could mean anything. But he said, you can eat of these things. And then he gave the prohibition in verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, no. So the question is, will man reject God's right to rule by declaring himself independent of God? This is where our theology, Genesis 1 through 11, comes into play. When God says, don't do this because it's bad for you, we have to choose whether or not we are under the creator or over the creator or equal to the creator. That's why understanding good theology helps you live a good life. So we are natural, spiritual, practical, rational, moral. Six, we're social. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Adam and Eve were similar yet different, both with glorious purpose, and Eve was a suitable companion. She was made for him and he was made for her. So when God created man and woman being different, they were different. We know they're different. Uh, Growing up in the 70s, I remember the big push for the now movement. I remember the women's lib stuff that was going on as a kid. I remember not being able to get a straight answer. I think most of my theology came from Archie Bunker, which was unfortunate because they made fun of it on TV. Someone was talking about it at least, and I realized he was an idiot. But I never, and then Maud came on, and she was the antithesis of Archie. And I just, unfortunately, I watched too much TV. But it wasn't until I went to Bible college that we had an honest discussion because sometimes the Bible can appear embarrassing to people who care about both genders. Seems like the men get everything and the women just have to go along with it. And then one day God will give them, what, a prize? And then I began to understand scripture. I was being biased by society, not by what the Bible teaches. The word helper seems demeaning in our culture, as I said, but the Hebrew word is used, uh, I've got at least 12 references here, used that God is a helper. And so if God can play the role of helper, then human beings can play the role of helpers with each other. And man was created to need others. This is one of the important points that I think we have to understand. In this John Wayne culture we live in in America where I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to earn it my way and make it my way, it's just you weren't created that way. That's why books like Robinson Crusoe are still read. That's why Castaway is a movie that people watch and and it's why we ask ourselves a question. What would I do? For some of us introverts introverts in the room, the thought of being on an island by ourselves for three or four months would be glorious. But not much more than that. And for some of you extroverts, the thought of being in your room by yourself for 20 minutes makes you sweat. You were created by God to have a need for other people. It was not good that Adam was alone. So in your spiritual development, remember that. You weren't created to walk your Christianity by yourself. Genesis 2, 20 through 23. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of the ribs, and he closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. He brought her to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She was taken out of him. This was the first part of creation outside of childbirth that happened. So Eve was taken from man different than any other person would be created. Right? And we talked about it before, and Adam slept. And uh, someone pointed out, I don't remember, someone last week pointed up a really good point about the fact that God's mercy in putting Adam to sleep to take her from him. <laughs> Otherwise, that would have been an interesting afternoon, wouldn't it? Have? <laughs> this adult human comes flying out of your side, and there's no one to explain why. There's no MD.com to go look it up at. Verses 24 and 5. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's a whole lot there. One flesh. The things of God coming together and producing a fuller life. The completion of God's plan. And we've talked in the past, and you can go online. We have a section about what that means for a single and what does it mean for married. And God's purposes can be fulfilled in both. Because being single doesn't mean you're a lesser human being. Being single means you find your areas of community in different ways. But it still involves people of all kinds. So it's not if you're married, you're really fulfilled. And if you're, you know, you're unleaded fulfilled if you're single. Not at all. Not at all. Because Paul says actually spiritually your life can have a richness to it being single that it can't have being married, which is kind of a fascinating uh, proposition. If you want to know more about that, go back into the other six-day series and those one message by Peter Buckland and one by myself. Uh, Peter's is better than mine, but go back and you can listen to those if you want to delve in deeper to what the Bible says about both of those conditions. So what I want to close with tonight in the next three minutes, <laughs> that's funny, is uh, this question of free will or not. This is a theological question that is gaining more and more uh, questionable support in our, in our country. Does God cause everything to happen? Does man cause everything to happen? If man has free will, does that mean God is not sovereign? Or does God's sovereignty mean he has to have his hand on everything? I'm not going to answer that tonight. I'm going to introduce it. And when we talk about sin and the consequences of sin, you must have some, some stance on this to be able to interpret that. So what we call free moral agency or the ability to obey or not, I don't think anybody, even those who believe strongly in the sovereignty of God and they believe that God causes everything to happen, there are some questions that have to be raised. If God causes everything to happen, did he cause the rape? Did he cause a tornado that hit our community? Did he cause the Titanic to go down? Did he cause what's evil going on in this world? Was it his will that those things happened? Or free will? If man can choose to do what man wants to do, then how does free will balance with the God who has a storm come up and capsized Jonah into the mouth of the fish? There's some... Murky edges, right, to the arguments. So, you know, I grew up, being a kid, one of my first memories of television was Flip Wilson. And I know some of you are so young, you have no idea, but some of you can remember. Flip Wilson used to always say, the devil made me do it. That was the punchline in the 1970s, early. So, do you believe in free will, or do you believe that God's caused everything to happen? You can make a, there's brilliant people making cases for both sides. But it's something we have to consider. What does the Bible say about it? Does God in his sovereignty bring about everything or does God in his sovereignty grant man free will to obey? So there's some verses here and it's going to make you think I'm trying to compel a case. What I'm trying to do is get you to ask key questions. In Genesis 2.16, it says, You are free to eat from the tree, but you must not eat from the tree. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. For when you eat of it. Does that mean God knew they would eat of it? Or God made them eat of it? John 7, 16 and 17. Are these on your notes? Did I leave those on there? Man, I was thinking. All right, good. My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, 
Is that free will? Or did God make them obey? Now, some people could pull other verses that say God's election, and we can talk about predestination and election. I don't think it's interpreted carefully. Isaiah 1, 18 through 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat from the best of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Created by God with earthly bodies, brought to life by spiritual presence, to serve an honorable purpose, to enjoy the gift of intellect and creativity, to be able to prove my respect and love for my creator by the choices I make, to be blessed with relationships that complete me, bless me, bless others, and bless God. So that's who we are in scripture. Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us who God is. It teaches us who Jesus is, or it gives us a foreshadowing of Christ and the promise of Jesus, and it shows us who we are. If we get those four things about our traits, and then we get the six things we can draw from Genesis 1 and 2, it allows us to go into next week, we talk about then what happened? Why, if all of this was understood, did we walk away from some of those things? And what happens when we walk away from them? It gives us a good theology of what sin is. Because sin is not just activities. Sin comes down to the choices by which we made. The reason we rejected. The reason we said to God, I'll eat of any tree I want to eat. And we'll just develop that further as we go. We'll either see you Sunday or next Wednesday night. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.